Hi everyone, welcome to the first of five webinars which are part of the Adolescent Webinar Series that have been organised by Sports Dietitians Australia. Today's topic will just be some pre-learning for you. Uh, it aims to develop your knowledge of the growth and development processes of adolescents and hopefully this will help your understanding of the webinars that are to come and also support any work you do with developing athletes. A quick overview of what's to come in the Adolescent Webinar Series. So today is all about the pre-learning. The next few webinars will be about energy and nutrient requirements for adolescents and then specifically adolescent athletes uh, and how to meet these needs and then looking at preventing injury and uh, absorbing daily training demands, so managing any potential health implications. My name is Pascal Young. I'll be taking you through this pre-learning webinar. I'm an APD and a sports dietitian, uh, and currently I'm undertaking a PhD at Monash University, and the focus of that PhD is on the impact of endurance exercise on GI and immune status of adolescent athletes, which is why I've been asked to help out with this series. Uh, I've created to webinar with the help of one of my supervisors, Zoe Davidson. So Zoe is an advanced uh, dietitian. She specialises in paediatric nutrition and she's also an experienced researcher in the field. A quick overview of the learning objectives before we jump into it. So by the end of this webinar, you'll be able to describe the changes to human biological systems and human metabolism. So that's in terms of physical and physiological changes that are going to occur in the child-adult maturation process. Hopefully you'll be able to explain the nutritional considerations to support this maturation process and then just list some key general nutrition guidelines and recommendations for children and adolescents comparable to adults. So the first section of this webinar is going to look at growth and development. Generally, growth and development can be divided into four phases, so infancy, preschool years, middle childhood years, and then adolescence. Growth is the key marker for overall health and development in young people, so almost all changes in health and nutrition have the potential to affect normal growth. Uh, as such, any practitioners that are working with this age group need to be really familiar with the use of growth charts. So we generally use the World Health Organization growth charts for children aged 0 to 2 years and then the CDC charts for children aged 2 to 18 years. So the CDC charts are likely the ones you're going to be working with more if you're uh, working with adolescent athletes, of course. Assessing growth generally includes measuring their height, their weight and uh, working out their BMI. And then plotting this on a growth chart to determine if growth is occurring as expected or if it's not. Uh, while it's a very useful tool to assess the likelihood of perhaps a nutrition or a health issue, it's definitely not used as a diagnostic tool. The main topic of this webinar is adolescence, but it's important to have some, some background and some knowledge in what happens during childhood as well. So this first slide just quick overview of growth and development expected in, in the childhood years. So growth remains relatively constant, it's quite simple. Uh, in mid-childhood, so around seven or eight years, a growth spurt is generally expected. It occurs in probably about two-thirds of, of all healthy children. Uh, growth is mostly dominated by growth in the legs, not the trunk, and uh, there isn't much of a difference between genders. Just before puberty hits, uh, there generally occurs a decline in growth. So we term this pre-pubertal growth lag, and that's a good indicator of um, if puberty is expected to occur soon. While you can see that childhood growth remains relatively constant, the growth and development that's associated with adolescence is much more complex. So adolescence itself is referring to that developmental stage between childhood and adulthood. 
it may be up to 18 years of age or potentially even slightly older if growth still is occurring, uh, particularly in, in males. And during this time, we not only see massive changes in physical growth, but there's also expected changes in physiological, psychological uh, growth and also behaviour changes where people go from being relatively dependent on their parents or guardians and, and others to relatively independent. Uh, so we're going to take a look at how the change in behaviour and, and dependency does affect nutrition a, a little bit later on in this webinar, but we'll start by looking at uh, the physical development. Puberty is the main event that defines adolescent growth uh, and it's caused by a secretion of sex hormones, so estrogen and testosterone. In comparison to uh, children, the growth at this time is dominated more by increase in trunk length rather than leg length. The pubertal growth generally occurs over about three years and is categorised into three different stages. So firstly, looking at just before puberty hits, uh, this is referred to as minimal height velocity or as we talked about earlier, pre-pubertal growth lag where a decline in uh, growth velocity occurs. Following this comes a maximal growth stage or more commonly referred to as peak height velocity. And this is associated with the fastest upward growth in stature, it can be eight to 10 centimetres in, in some individuals. And finally, following that is a decline in height velocity that occurs, which is considered the height limiting process. And this is caused by a fusion of uh, the joint cartilage and the mineralization of the growth plate. So this figure on the right hand side is kind of tracking skeletal growth velocity from infancy to post puberty. And you can see that during childhood, uh, growth is relatively the same in or tracking the same in both boys and girls. The y-axis is indicating the amount of centimetres gained. So during childhood, there's that initial rapid decrease in velocity between zero to four years, followed by a slower kind of consistent decline in velocity with almost no changes in uh, centimetres or height just before puberty. So that's that pre-pubertal growth lag. And then the pubertal component is characterised by that really big growth spurt. And girls, you can see generally uh, starting that growth spurt and attaining their peak height velocity a couple of years before boys do. So that big growth spurt that's associated with puberty generally occurs over about a three year period. And as previously mentioned, is due to the effects of the, those sex and, and growth hormones. Uh, it's really important to know when you're working with youth and to expect that the exact time points of puberty are going to vary enormously between individuals. So some of the factors that influence the timing of, of puberty or growth spurt are things like genetics, uh, gender, we looked at ethnicity and also body weight. Boys generally see um, an acceleration of growth in muscles while girls see an increase in adipose tissue. So body composition changes uh, expected there as well. And during the pubertal growth spurt, adolescents tend to attain their, about 15% of their final adult height, 40% of their adult weight, and about 45% of their maximal skeletal mass. So the average height velocity during the whole of, of puberty is expected to be around five to six centimetres a year, whereas during that uh, peak height velocity, it's expected to be about eight to 10 centimetres per, per year. So a really big difference uh, in height in just a year. The onset is more closely related to bone age than chronological age. So again, all these big changes in physical growth will vary between individuals, even if in the same uh, year group or the same age. And there's a, that big difference between genders, uh, unlike in, in childhood. 
So if we're looking at genders, girls generally do start their growth spurt and attain peak height velocity approximately two years before boys. Uh, in females, the growth spurt begins around nine years of age and peak height velocity around 11 and a half years of age. Uh, menarche occurs around 13 years, years old, but again, huge variation in uh, between individuals and this one's is very much dependent on genetics. Um, also important to consider that really vigorous exercise can delay menarche. So if you're working in uh, very athletic adolescence, that's, that's something to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, there is a relationship between the growth spurt and the age of menarche and the greatest height increase generally occurs in the year preceding menarche. Uh, and females generally grow a further six centimetres after uh, menarche occurs. Boys tend to begin their growth spurt a couple years later, so around 11 years old, and peak height velocity 13 and a half years old. Uh, in boys, some growth may still occur after adolescence, so between the ages of 17 to 28 years, which doesn't happen as commonly in, in females. Usually no more than two centimetres, but it definitely does occur. These two charts are just demonstrating the gender difference. So uh, boys in blue and, and girls in pink. So you can see that the boys are hitting that peak growth a little bit later on than the girls. And the amount of growth achieved is much higher uh, in the boys than the girls, which if we look at population characteristics is very much expected. Uh, while girls generally completely cease growth around that kind of 15 to 17 year age group, you can see that some of the lines for the boys are, continue, are continuing even past 18 years uh, and definitely the growth is finishing later. Uh, that green line that's going past 18 years, that is representing the 97th percentile, so it's not exactly typical, but again, remembering it, it definitely can occur. So it's not only uh, big changes in height that occur, there's also some big changes in body composition that start to occur with, with puberty. Uh, so these are determined by, again, sex hormones. So uh, elevated androgens in males have a growth promoting effect and promote uh, more muscle and, and lean tissue growth, while in females, the female hormones like estrogen tend to promote more um, fat deposits, especially around the pelvis, the hips, buttocks and the, the breast. So knowing this kind of expected trajectory of, of growth and differences between genders is really going to be important when you're working with young athletes or any adolescents, particularly when determining if they're, going, they're meeting their energy requirements or they're going over or under. Uh, which will be expanded on in a few more webinars. With such big changes in height occurring during puberty, you would of course expect big changes in the skeleton to occur as well. So uh, in bones, when we're younger, we have a growth plate that's made of cartilage and its role is to uh, separate our, the ends of our long bones to the shafts. Uh, which you can see quite clearly in this figure. Uh, as we develop and as puberty ends, the growth plate starts to mineralise and harden and turns into solid bone. And this process of, of turning from cartilage to bone is what uh, ends growth in height. So that growth plate is, is there to regulate not only growth, but it also helps to determine the length and the shape of the adult bone. You can imagine that if it's uh, not yet bone, not yet hardened, it's cartilage, there have been some uh, reported growth plate injuries in adolescent athletes, particularly playing contact sports and high impact sports like um, gymnastics. This can potentially cause some disturbances in bone growth, of course, and, and some bone def deformity as well. So the literature su suggests the period of rapid growth uh, is when athletes are uh, more increased risk of these types of injuries, so something to keep in mind. Bone mass actually doubles between the onset of puberty and young adulthood, which is a relatively short time frame to see such a big increase. 
Uh, and to support this, our bodies get more efficient at absorbing calcium, independent of our calcium intake. And it tends to be a little bit higher in boys uh, rather than girls. And that would be, you would think, to support uh, boys generally meeting a higher final height than females. The bone growth is greatest uh, approximately six months after peak height velocity, and this bone growth is in length rather than diameter. Of course, there are going to be factors that do affect um, diameter, such as if the adolescent is participating in some resistance exercise or, or not. Uh, and by the time growth finishes and that growth plate hardens, uh, peak bone density, or about 90 to 95% um, of of bone mineral density has already been met. Aside from changes in bones, there's also other internal changes that occur. So all of our organs generally increase in size in adolescence, uh, except there is, is minimal brain growth during this time. Uh, the lungs increase in size, which will increase vital capacity, uh, and this is generally greater in, in males and females, and that's relative to a larger body size generally. Uh, the heart doubles in size, blood pressure increases, and also haemoglobin concentration in blood increases as well. And that increases, again, greater in, in males and females. So it's a good time to reflect and think how these these changes in organs such as lungs and heart, so important of course uh, in performance, sports performance, how these changes during adolescence could affect your, your um, adolescent athlete in terms of uh, their training program and their performance, etc. So if we're evaluating pubertal growth, we discussed tracking growth through uh, CDC growth charts to ensure your client is growing normally. However, it's also really useful to know what developmental stage an adolescent is at, uh, as age alone is not a good in indicator of maturation levels. So uh, you can see that there's massive differences in gender, but there's also massive differences between individuals of the same uh, gender in the same year group uh, or the, born the same year. The Tanner stage is the most widely used rating system. Some of you may have heard of this, some of you may use it, uh, but it's used to evaluate pubertal growth and maturation. So the Tanner stage involves using a scale of one to five. Boys will be assigned according to progression of genitalia and pubic hair development, and girls based on progression of uh, breast growth and pubic hair development as well. There's a separate rating for each characteristic, and then the mean value of these two ratings is used to indicate the level of maturity that that adolescent is at. This is an example of the visual developmental charts used to identify what Tanner stage out of the five um, an adolescent might be at. So you might be working closely with a sports physician or, or GP and they might uh, take responsibility for determining this or uh, a good way to do it is to, to print these out and get your adolescent to point at where they believe they sit on the, the chart. If they've pointed at stage one, then this is an indicator that they're uh, at pre-puberty. Uh, if they've pointed at two, this represents the beginning of puberty with the earliest visible signs beginning to occur. Uh, and then, for example, if they pointed at stage five, well, generally the, that's considered that the evidence of adult growth and, and height is probably finished. Again, it may still increase a little bit in in males. So why would we use these TAN stages and not just be plotting their growth um, according to the CDC growth charts? So we've established that age or year group is not an indicator of what developmental stage they could be at. Assessing where an adolescent sits according to sexual maturity and um, puberty is going to be give a much clearer idea of expected timing and type of changes that are likely to, to occur, which if you're working with an adolescent athlete is going to be really important as these are all going to 
uh, impact on not only nutritional needs, but also on uh, body composition and expectations with body composition and potentially performance as well. So for example, identifying a sexual development stage will determine whether their full height has been reached or whether more growth is expected. Uh, in addition, you can also recognise whether changes in body composition, so whether that's fat or, or muscle, are due to lifestyle or are they due to developmental stage that they're in. So how do we go about obtaining a Turner stage for our adolescents? Uh, so as mentioned earlier, if you want to obtain that, that turn stage, you might ask your adolescent to point to where they think they sit in the visual chart. Um, and or you can also kind of ask questions to give you some insights. So for example, if a girl has already started her period, she might be at uh, turn stage four and most of her linear growth has almost been completed. This would indicate that some nutrient needs are starting to decrease, whereas others are going to increase, for example, um, iron. If menstruation has become at a, begun sorry, at a particularly young age, so if um, they're 11 years or, or younger and they're indicating that they started their periods, then that would be an exception to the rule in terms of height. So you would still expect that quite a bit of linear growth is, is going to occur. Uh, in boys, faint signs of facial hair generally correspond to stage uh, three. So this stage indicates the beginning of peak height velocity, which means uh, energy needs and nutrient needs are going to be their highest. The next section of this webinar is going to focus on that second learning objective, which was looking at changes in human metabolism or physiological characteristics. So these can be a particularly important area to, to understand due to the implications it can have on nutri nutrition practices uh, and strategies that you might employ with adolescents or, or adolescent athletes. The following table is one that's been adapted from the fifth edition of Clinical Sports Nutrition Textbook and it describes some of those key physiological differences between children and adolescents and adults. And we're focusing today on the physiological characteristics that are going to affect physical ability, uh, perhaps performance, uh, and also nutrition needs, because of course, as sports dietitians, that's our main area. So if we start with thermoregulatory response, uh, children appear to have an alternate mechanism to regulate body heat, which is generally less effective than adults. Uh, so they have slower sweat rates and they also have less sodium uh, in their sweat. So in terms of fluid losses and, and sodium losses and needing to replace these like you would in adults, it's probably going to be not as essential. We're going to explore this a little bit further on the next few slides anyway. Uh, aerobic metabolism. So it's unclear whether children and adolescents can actually reach the same VO2 max as adults, and that's due to confounding in studies related to uh, children have a relatively higher hyperventilation rate, they have reduced capacity to store carbon dioxide, and they also can attain VO2 uh, steady state a lot earlier than adults in, in moderate exercise. What we do know though, is that boys are able to reach a higher VO2 max than girls, and that's due to um, a larger rise in, in muscle mass with puberty. Smaller body size with children and uh, young adolescents means less cardiac output, which of course suggests a lower capacity to train, especially at that high intensity for those prolonged periods. This is often reflected in event distances, uh, which are typically shorter and have age cutoffs, uh, if you think of things like triathlons. Both the aerobic and anaerobic capacity do increase with age and maturation, um, but usually at, at different rates between individuals and typically uh, faster in, in boys and girls. There's also limited information or studies at the moment on adaptions to training in relation to substrate use and, and enzymes and things like that, like there are on adults. So that's the space to, to watch.
In terms of anaerobic metabolism, so children have lower lactic acid threshold, so they're going to be disadvantaged in activities that involve mainly anaerobic exercise uh, in comparison to, to adults. Substrate utilization during exercise, so children and adolescents tend to have a higher fat oxidation rate uh, during exercise, but this again declines with uh, maturation. Uh, most recent studies as well are showing that they, there's a high reliance on exogenous carbohydrate as fuel compared to, to adults, uh, which again we're going to look at a bit more closely in a few slides time. Uh, muscle fibres, so obviously they have smaller muscle mass uh, and you have to consider sex hormone influences and, and maturation age uh, in terms of, of body composition there, which we went through earlier. Muscle fibre size does increase, however, almost in a linear manner from, from birth to young adulthood. Uh, and the percentage of type 1 muscle fibres, so they're those kind of slow twitch, more aerobic endurance uh, muscle fibres. In males, they reduce around the age of, of 10 to 19. And trends in females are less consistent and there's actually not much data on, on muscle mass in adolescent females anyway. Uh, lastly, exercise recovery. So young people have been consistently shown to recover faster from intermittent bouts of, of maximal high intensity exercise, uh, aerobic exercise, so running and, and cycling in comparison to adults. Uh, there are some issues though when comparing recovery and, and maximal output between children and adolescents. So uh, the maximal output that an adult can do is a lot higher than the maximal output that a child can do. So if the, the, there's lower output or power output uh, during exercise, then that's going to contribute to a faster recovery as there's less to recover from. Uh, so whether it's, it's due to um, a greater ability to recover or whether it's actually due to they can't work as hard as, as adults, we don't really know. It does appear there's a gradual decline from childhood to adulthood though in the ability to, re to recover quickly um, after high intensity intensity training or competition. Uh, that's in males. In females, the decline occurs at age 14 or 15. And again, that's going to be related to them almost finishing, completely finishing puberty and growth at that earlier age. So they meet full maturation um, a lot earlier than what, what the males do, which we saw earlier in this webinar. I'm just gonna spend a little bit of time expanding on the thermo regulation of children and adolescents, uh, particularly in extreme environments uh, and when exercising in extreme environments. So as I mentioned, children and adolescents do appear to be less effective at, at regulating body temperature. And this is thought to be due to higher surface area to mass. So they're gonna have increased heat gains on hot days and increased heat losses on, on cool days. Uh, they do produce more heat in locomotion per unit body mass than what adults do. So essentially movement is less efficient in, in children and adolescents compared to adults. Uh, they have slower sweat rates, which, which we looked at, and they also have a slower commencement of sweating. They also have a much greater diversion of cardiac output to the skin in hot conditions, uh, which is gonna mean there's a decreased amount of blood going to the body's core and to, to working muscles. So due to this relatively uh, relative surface area, much larger relative surface area, sorry, children divert a greater portion of that cardiac output to their periphery or, or skin than what adults do. So basically they rely more on peripheral blood redistribution than evaporative heat, lossing, heat loss through sweating, uh, which explains why they have a slower commencement of sweating and generally lower sweat rate. So in the late 80s and the early 90s, there were lots of studies being done that tried to prove that children did have these altered mechanisms of, of thermoregulation in comparison to adults, and that this was actually related to stage of, of maturation, not so much chronological age or, or physical growth. So the study on the right um, is a study that was done by Falk 
and colleagues in 91 and it explored forearm blood flow in boys at different pubertal stages who were cycling in hot, dry conditions. So the forearm blood flow is meant to reflect that greater reliance on peripheral blood redistribution. Uh, clearly, this figure shows a progressive decrease in forearm blood flow with maturity level in pre, mid and late pubertal boys. And the difference shows that younger children have a higher proportion of cardiac output diverted to skin under, under heat stress. And this is eventually, you would think, going to compromise performance in terms of um, intensity and duration as there's less blood to the muscles and, and to the core. Uh, good news is, like adults, regular training in the heat can improve um, adaptions and uh, the children and adolescents bec can become more effective at cooling when exercising in, in the heat. This adaption is likely related to uh, pubertal development again. There have been more recent quite well-designed studies that have demonstrated actually maybe children um, have quite a similar capacity to adults to tolerate exercise in, in hot conditions. So in terms of, of summarising, we know that whenever there's studies done on children, there's always limitations due to ethical concerns. So there's going to be ethical concerns limiting pushing children to meet physiological uh, limits in the heat. So while it appears, yes, children and adolescents can tolerate mild to moderate heat stress, uh, considering the, the differences in thermoregulation, it's fair to assume that when exercising very extreme in environments, so very hot, very humid conditions, and if the child is not adapted and not used to exercising or, or training in such conditions, then they're going to be at much higher risk of heat stress compared to the adult counterpart. Just before we move on, I, I wanted to include this really straightforward and, and clear uh, figure from one of Falk's studies that demonstrates that maturation level and uh, the impact on on sweating rate. So the top graph is showing the sweat rate per body surface area and the bottom shows the sweat rate per gland uh, in pre, mid and late. So that's PP, MP, LP, uh, pubertal boys and then adults cycling in, in hot dry conditions. So the adolescents and children are, are in the shaded and the adults are in the unshaded. And you can really clearly see that both the sweat rate per gland and the total sweat rate increase with maturation or, or timing of puberty. So it really shows a good, that strong relationship between uh, thermoregulation and, and maturation level. In terms of uh, the other side of the spectrum, so in cold conditions, children are a much higher risk of, of hypothermia this time than what adults are. And that's due to, again, having a much larger surface area leading to increase um, heat losses. The smaller the individual, the higher the risk because of the, the larger relative surface area. And the risk is also dependent on fat mass. So more adipos adiposity sorry, is related to more thermal uh, insulation. So if you have a very lean, very small athlete or adolescent in these conditions, they're going to be at much higher risk of, of hypothermia. Uh, in water, interestingly, the loss of heat from the body is 25 to 40 uh, times higher than that in air. So those involved in water sports, very small, quite lean, uh, they again are going to be at increased risk of hypothermia. If we look at the effects of resistance exercise on muscle mass, so muscle mass, uh, or sorry, muscle growth in adolescence is dominated by growth in length and, and not breadth, which means that there's a delay in increasing muscle mass. Uh, it's a stage of maturation that influences muscle development and adolescence ability to gain muscle. Uh, so greatest gains are usually always going to occur once growth has finished. Pre-adolescent males do respond better to resistance training compared to females at similar growth stage, and that is, of course, because they have more testosterone. So compared to adults, 
children do have, yes, a reduced ability to grow muscle, it's, it's more likely to grow in length rather than breadth in response to resistance training. However, that doesn't mean that there's no point in doing resistance training in this uh, age group. So studies have shown that resistance training can actually improve muscle strength. Uh, it can definitely imp improve motor skills and it can reduce injury risk. And that's going to uh, be to do with the effect of bone density, like in older adults. So at a time where um, bone is, is growing and they're acquiring much higher levels of, of bone mass and bone density, some resistance exercise is going to be very helpful in determining the total amount of, of bone density they end up with in adulthood. A stronger, more bone, bone mass, stronger bones is going to lead to a reduced injury risk later on in life. So moving on to looking at substrate utilisation during exercise. So it's clear from lots of studies that children do have this high reliance on fat oxidation during uh, endurance type exercise in comparison to, to adults who will use more glycogen or carbohydrate. Uh, the fat oxidation levels appear to be inversely correlated with testosterone levels. So that is the higher the testosterone, uh, the lower the fat oxidation. But there also now appears to be this link between use of exogenous carbohydrates as fuel, um, which is related to, to pubertal status. So there was a study by Timmons and colleagues in 2013. Uh, they divided 20 boys, all aged 12 years of age, uh, into three pubertal groups, so pre, early and mid to late pubertal, and they had them consume either a placebo drink or a 6% carb drink while they were cycling for 60 minutes. They also had another group who did the same procedure. This group uh, was compromised of 14-year-old boys, so they were considered all late puberty. The findings of this study confirmed, yes, fat oxidation is, is higher in younger boys compared to older boys, but similar among uh, pubertal stage. Uh, but interestingly, it found that the highest oxidation rates of exogenous carbs were found in those pre and early pubertal boys compared to the mid to late uh, pubertal boys and the older 14 year old boys. So the carbohydrate oxidation rate in pre and early puberty uh, was approximately 30% higher than what had previously been reported in trained and untrained adults uh, doing the same amount of, of exercise, so 60 minutes of exercise. The 14-year-old boys uh, had similar carbohydrate oxidation rates to, to adults. So the findings suggest that there's this reliance on or higher reliance on carbohydrate feeding during exercise, which is sensitive to pubertal status rather than age. Uh, with the highest dependence in those young or pre and early pubertal boys compared to older or late puberty boys. The same uh, influence on maturation isn't seen in girls or wasn't seen in, in girls with the reliance on exogenous carbohydrate oxidation, similar in both the pre-adolescent and adolescent females. Uh, and this may be attributed to generally their the earlier onset of, of puberty in females compared to males. Okay, so the third and final section of this webinar, we're going to take a quick snapshot look at some key uh, nutritional recommendations and guidelines that is going to support growth and development and maturation uh, that happens in children and adolescents. So I'm, I've kept this section pretty brief. Uh, and that's because the next few webinars will take a much more in-depth look into the, the energy and nutrient requirements of adolescents and also specifically of um, very active or, or athletic adolescents as well. So adolescence is generally a quite nutritionally vulnerable period of life uh, and that's due to lots of different changes happening. So of course, there's the physical changes. So that dramatic increase in growth and development that they see through puberty, which we've, we've just looked at, which is of course going to mean there's certain nutrients and, and micronutrients that are required in, in higher amounts. They're also usually going through uh, changes in lifestyle. So whether that's moving from primary school to, to middle or high school, whether that's suddenly their sports training um, is becoming 
uh, harder and, and more elite uh, and there's more hours put into it and also that development of, of moving from being quite dependent on adults and, and parents and guardians to becoming a lot more independent um, and that can have a real impact of course on, on food habits. Uh, it's also an age which is uh, highly influenced so whether that's again from uh, parents or whether that's more so now from peers and, and perhaps role models and, and social media and people they, they look up to. So the nutritional requirements vary according to the stage of maturation and adolescence it is in. So and we've seen that um, that's not necessarily related to, to age uh, and also the levels of physical activity or, or training. So understandably, the nutrient needs are going to vary widely between uh, individuals. So depend, not dependent on age and, and also between genders as well. And while there's a clear kind of increased energy demand that's associated with growth and development processes, it's actually the exercise and the training load which have the greatest influence on overall energy requirements in this age group. So it's really important to account for these um, extra, extra needs when you're working with an active adolescence. So what is influencing adolescent food choices? Uh, well, it is a time of experimentation generally. So they start to gain a lot more independence. They start to experiment a little bit more and this often extends into their food choices. Uh, it's estimated about a third of uh, all meals are consumed outside of the home by adolescents. Whereas if you think of um, children and, and during childhood, majority of those meals you would expect to be consumed um, in a family environment or perhaps overseen by an adult in, in a daycare or um, in primary school. The dietary habits that they form during adolescence uh, often persist into adulthood. So nutrition education is essential at, at this time in life. Uh, and in terms of some of those factors that, that are going to influence adolescent food choices. So uh, there's socio-demographic factors such as um, how old they are, their gender, their family income. Uh, there's also going to be behavioural factors such as uh, what's for dinner in the, uh, in the family or in the home, where the dinner is eaten or the meals eaten, whether that's in front of the TV, whether that's at the dinner table. Uh, and also uh, dieting behaviours, particularly in teenage females. Uh, so the dieting culture can have a, a particularly harmful effect of girls and be influencing their food habits at this time. And again, that, that can persist into adulthood. Uh, so yeah, really important in terms of uh, nutrition education and kind of setting up those lifelong habits and forming that really healthy relationship with food as, as best as possible. Uh, environmental factors as well are, are going to be influential. So what the parents are eating or family, uh, availability of food both at home and also um, outside of the, the home and also what, what are their peers eating uh, because as I mentioned before, it is quite a influential age. So just before we get into the specific recommendations, uh, this is a quick reminder of the nutrient reference values, which I'm sure most of you are very familiar with. Uh, so they're generally going to be expressed in two ways. There's your estimated average requirement, which is referring to the daily nutrient level estimated to meet requirements of half health of all healthy individuals at that specific life stage and also specific gender. Um, and then there's the RDI, so the recommended dietary intake. So looking at the average daily uh, intake level that is sufficient to meet the nutrient requirements of nearly all healthy individuals, uh, again, in a particular life stage and, stage and gender. So the, the RDI is kind of the gold standard. So we'll start with energy and protein. So energy, of course, provides the fuel uh, that's needed for that really rapid linear growth 
that happens during puberty. Uh, the kilojoules and the amount of protein in grams it, relative to body mass during childhood and adolescence is much higher than what's required for adults, so that's relative to, to body mass. Uh, both energy and protein requirements will always be highest during the peak height velocity. So that's that pubertal growth spurt that um, might happen over two or three years. And boys generally have a higher requirement than girls. And again, that's often because they are going to be growing more and they uh, generally reach a, a higher height. Obviously not all, but, but in general. So this table, on the right is, is demonstrating the ER, the estimated average requirement in the RDI for protein uh, for children and adolescents, and I've listed both genders there. So you can see that males require more protein, um, and the protein requirements in males increases with age to account for that kind of likely growth spurt, whereas in females, as age increase and increases, uh, the protein requirement stays relatively the same. Uh, or reduces slightly, and that's due to the earlier, generally earlier onset of, of puberty. When comparing um, protein requirements with adults, the RDI uh, is lower for adult males aged 19 to 70, so you can see it's 0 0.84 uh, in comparison to what can be as high as 0 0.99 or rounding to kind of one gram per kilo. And for females, um, of the same age, so 19 to, to 70 years, it's 0 0.75, which is slightly lower than ages 14 to 18, uh, but quite a bit lower for the 9 to 13. And remembering 9 to 13 is probably an age that um, in females you would expect that peak height velocity to be occurring. Uh, so the next two slides are taken directly from the nutrient reference values for Oz and New Zealand. And it just shows you really clearly the relationship between growth and daily energy needs and also the effect that physical activity has on energy needs. So uh, this first table is for boys. And you can see that at the highest physical acti activity level, which is uh, probably what's associated with adolescents who are at an elite level of of sport that the energy requirements per day are more than double uh, compared to those males that are at a lower physical activity level. Uh, so you can imagine it can be really hard to fit in all that food to meet that large amount of energy associated with obviously high training loads. But on top of that, going through growth and development, particularly that um, when they're going through that peak height velocity stage, uh, and also considering at this age, uh, they're often very busy. So they're full-time school and they um, have recreational time and friends and family, but also on top of that, if they're a, a elite athlete, there's the training hours um, and the competition on the weekends perhaps, and also the homework and study and, and all of that. So it can be quite a challenge um, to meet these really high energy needs that are associated with growth and development and perhaps a, a high training load. And then this next uh, slide is just showing you girls. So the general energy requirements are, per day are, are gonna be lower than males, uh, but same effect in terms of physical activity. You can see that at the highest levels that um, the amount of energy needed per day is, is kind of double compared to that um, if they're not taking part in, in sport or small amounts of, of physical activity. So moving on to looking at the important micronutrients that are needed to support growth and development. So of course, iron is one of them, um, and that's due to an expanding blood volume that occurs with growth. And also, uh, as we looked at earlier, there's a rise in haemoglobin levels in the blood, which uh, requires iron to, to happen. Uh, iron also supports the myoglobin component of growing muscle, so really important for, for growth. Uh, for females, the requirements from first menarche are much higher, and that's to account for that monthly blood loss as well as, um, of course, growth. And it's estimated that about 40% of females that are age 14 to 18 don't meet their iron requirements 
requirements, which you can see on this right-hand uh, graph. And actually, it looks like reproductively active females in general are very much at, at risk of iron deficiency due to in, inadequate intakes to meet their uh, needs compared to males, which are in the light blue graphs and tend to um, be meeting their needs or, or almost eating enough iron to meet those needs daily. Uh, the RDI for males uh, for iron increases between the ages of 14 and 18, and that's to account for growth. And then it reduces back to that eight milligrams uh, from 19 years onward. In females, the increase uh, occurs at that 14 to 18 years. Uh, so going from eight milligrams to, to 15 milligrams per day. And then from 19 years to 50 years, uh, it jumps up to 18 milligrams. So there are a few assumptions being made for females. So A, uh, the first assumption is that first menarche is occurring uh, at 14 years or, or older, where we know that for some females it, it can occur earlier. Um, so if they're getting their first period at 11 or 12, they're going to need that higher amount of iron from there. Um, and also it could be argued that actually from 14 years or from first menarche, uh, the amount of iron per day should be 18 milligrams, so the same as what it is for females over the age of, of 19. Calcium is going to be another really important micronutrient, and that's due to those massive increases in, in bone uh, during growth. So the calcium is essential to optimise peak bone mass uh, and requirements are their highest during that growth spurt, so that peak height velocity. Uh, unfortunately, data reports that generally um, adolescents are eating less than their estimated average requirement. Uh, and there also appears to be a, a trend of um, a substantial decrease in dairy food intakes in females in mid to late adolescence compared to males. Uh, so they may be, so kind of older um, adolescent females might be a higher risk group of inadequate calcium intake. So in terms of the nutrient reference value, so there's no difference between genders for calcium. Um, from age 12, the calcium required is about 1300 milligrams, which is three and a half serves of, of dairy rich or dairy food or, or calcium rich alternatives. Uh, and that's to account for those growth spurts. And then it reduces to um, 1000 milligrams a day during adulthood and then back to that 1300 uh, from in older adults. So the third micronutrient we'll spend a little bit of time on is zinc, and that's because it's really important in the growth process. So its role in the body is to act as a catalyst for lots of different metabolic reactions that are associated with uh, both growth and also sexual development. So deficiency in zinc during this period almost always will have some impact on growth, and it can also have negative uh, impact on cognitive development and delay sexual maturation. So males generally require about double that of females and that's to account for that uh, increased upward growth but also because zinc plays a really important role in male fertility. So you can see that even uh, once growth has finished and in those adult males the amount of zinc required each day is still higher than, than females, so 14 milligrams compared to 8 milligrams. Uh, the RDI for males during puberty is 13 milligrams, whereas females is 7 milligrams. Uh, so some good food sources of, of zinc, uh, things like meat and, and shellfish, uh, legumes, uh, also whole grain cereals that have, have been fortified, to name a few. The requirements for other micronutrients generally increase with maturation and move close to, to adult requirements. So I'll just briefly highlight some that are uh, quite important to, to adolescence and um, development. So vitamin D, of course, because it plays that really important role in bone health. Uh, so it's going to be adequate levels are going to be required for uh, rapid bone growth. 
along with the, the calcium. There's no change from in, infancy to adulthood in terms of how much is recommended. So across the board, it's at five uh, micrograms per day. Uh, B vitamins, so these increase from toddlers and are then similar to adult requirements during adolescence. Um, and folic acid is of particular importance, and that's because of um, if there's some risk of, of teen pregnancy, uh, as with adult or all pregnancies, folic acid is uh, required. Those at the highest risk of deficiencies include smokers, uh, dieters, so remembering that uh, teenage girls can be a little bit higher risk at, at practicing dieting behaviors, uh, pregnant teenagers, of course, and those consuming excess alcohol. So I'm sure you're all very familiar with the contents of this slide. So looking at the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, this is when we can start to translate some of those numbers and, and RDIs of micro and macronutrients into real foods and, and real serving suggestions each day. Um, so I'm just going to point out a couple of the groups which do change to account for puberty and, and growth. So the first one is the dairy and alternatives. So in terms of the, the timing of increase recommendations, you can see that females are recommended to jump up to three serves a day at nine years of age compared to two and a half in, in boys. And that's to account for uh, girls most likely having their growth spurt a little bit earlier or starting their puberty and having their growth spurt a little bit earlier than boys. And then um, boys and girls both jump up to three and a half at, at the 12 years of age. So that's the 1300 milligrams per day RDI, which we saw uh, once they have finished growth and, and they're adults, that's when it drops back down to two and a half serves, which is equivalent to that 1000 milligrams per day uh, RDI that we saw for adults. Grains is another group which is a little bit different from adults. So between 14 and 18, it's recommended that adolescents have seven serves of whole grain foods a day uh, compared to adults who are recommended six serves. And that's just to account again for the extra energy associated with growth, making sure you're getting enough zinc, B vitamins, iron, all, all of those really important for development. Uh, in terms of the other food groups, so vegetables, fruit and, and your lean meats and alternatives, uh, they're all relatively the same between genders and also between adults and, and adolescents. Uh, if we look at the physical activity guidelines for your everyday adolescents, so should be accumulating at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity every day. And this should include a variety of aerobic activities. Uh, and it should also, in their week, include some vigorous intensity activity or, or higher intensity activity. Uh, on at least three occasions in the week, they should also be engaging in some exercise that helps to strengthen the muscle and, and the bone. And we saw the benefits of the resistance exercise, of course, we know can have on um, optimizing bone mass but also some of those benefits in terms of strength and, and motor skills, uh, et cetera. And then to achieve additional health benefits, uh, young people are also encouraged to engage in even more activity than just the 60 minutes a, a day. So they should really be moving for, for several hours in a day. So that brings us to the end of the pre-learning webinar as part of the Adolescence webinar series. If we revisit the learning objectives, hopefully now you're familiar with the expected changes that are associated with growth, growth from um, childhood to adulthood, uh, particularly in that important pubertal growth spurt or peak height velocity stage. Uh, so you know some of the gender differences, the influences on, on growth and development, the internal changes that are expected to happen, um, such as the changes in, in bone, and also the expected sexual development and uh, assessment of this to help you determine uh, nutrient requirements. You can describe some of the changes that occur to human metabolism, so that's some of the physiological changes that occur. 
Uh, I focus mainly on ones that will be important for sport, such as thermoregulation, uh, substrate utilisation, changes that occur uh, to aerobic and anaerobic metabolism, and the comparison to, to adults, and uh, particularly important to recognise that these changes are more often associated with pubertal stage rather than actual chronological age. Uh, and finally, hopefully you're able to recognise which nutrients and main micronutrients are going to be of particular importance for supporting growth and development, and you're able to translate these into practical recommendations for adolescents. Thank you for listening. I hope you have learnt a little bit and you enjoy the rest of the Adolescence webinar series.